As we noted in our explanation of the background to the letter to Philemon, Philemon is the shortest of all Paul's letters in the New Testament. That means we don't have chapters in Philemon, we just have verses. So if we say Philemon 1, that's Philemon verse 1. Philemon 2 is Philemon verse 2 and so on. So there's no chapters in Philemon because of its unique short size. But there are various parts to the letter. The letter really has three main parts. It has uh, an introduction and opening sort of well-wish and prayer. Then it has the body of the letter where Paul really gets into the heart of the issue and makes his appeal to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. And then it has its kind of concluding words and greetings at the end of the letter. So those three parts make up this letter. Let's work our way down through the text of Philemon so that we understand the details of this letter. Roman letters had a standard way of opening that we see evidenced in all the New Testament letters. The standard way of writing a letter in their day went uh, sender, recipient, greeting. And we see that here in Philemon. The sender is Paul, and he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And that helps us understand how Paul thought about his imprisonment. Indeed, he was a literal prisoner, probably of Rome, but he packages that. He frames that up as, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm a prisoner on Jesus' behalf. That's the whole reason I am in prison to the authorities is because of my first, basically giving myself to Jesus and saying, Jesus, whatever you want, I'm yours. So Paul is the sender along with Timothy. And we don't know exactly why he mentions Timothy here because really it's the basis of Paul's relationship with Philemon that is kind of the basis of this whole letter. But probably he mentions Timothy just because of his long-standing relationship with Timothy, because Timothy has been his partner in ministry for a long time and was his partner in ministry when the church at Colossae got started. And Timothy may actually be serving as sort of the secretary to write down Paul's letter as he dictates it to him at this point in time. Next are the recipients. And the recipients of this letter are listed this way. To Philemon, and he's the fundamental primary a recipient of the letter because he's the one that has the issue with Onesimus. So to Philemon, and in the background we explain that he is a wealthy landowner in Colossae, and it's in his house that the church meets. So to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, your fellow servant in the gospel, and to Aphia, our sister. We're not exactly sure the relationship between Aphia and Philemon, so likely Philemon's wife, but we're not 100% certain of that, but to Aphia and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. And uh, again, we don't know the exact relationship. Is Archippus just a, a key leader in the church? Is he some relative to Philemon? But these three are mentioned because of their involvement in the church, their prominent, significant roles in the church. And Paul wants this letter to be not just a personal letter. He wants it to be a churchly letter. And we'll see that even down towards the end. And so, to Philemon, to Aphia, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the whole church that's in your house. And so Paul uh, is dealing with an issue between Philemon and Onesimus, but he's basically wanting this letter to be read to the entire church that meets in Philemon's house. And the reason Paul wants it read to the whole church is because this really is a collective issue. 
Philemon is a powerful, prominent voice, and the church meets in his house, so as goes Philemon, in some ways, also goes the church, right? We've seen that in our own culture with pastors who lead the churches and some of that. But for Paul, this is also a gospel issue that needs to be figured how to live out for everybody, and so Philemon's in a certain regard, Philemon's dirty laundry is going to be aired before the entire church. And then we get what really is Paul's standard greeting, most common greeting in his letters, grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Standard Greek greetings use the word chirine for greetings, which sounds very similar to the word for grace, which in Greek is charis, chirine, Charis, and so it seems as if Paul just took the standard Greek greeting, Chirine, turned it to Charis, and gave it some theological meat to it, and then took the standard Jewish greeting, which was Shalom, which means peace, and put those two together, grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. From there, Paul turns to his prayer of thanks and his well-wish for Philemon, which again was a customary part of Greco-Roman letters, where they would have some sort of well-wish for the recipient, and for Paul, it usually turned to prayer. In Philemon, that well-wish sounds like this. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. And the saints don't refer to super holy old dead guides who's had statues made of them. The saints in the New Testament simply means holy ones, and it's always plural because it refers to God's people. In its context, biblically, it's a belonging term that derives from the Old Testament referring to God's holy people. And so the saints are God's people, and Philemon has demonstrated love and faithfulness towards all of God's people. And from there, then, Paul turns to the prayer that he he offers on Philemon's behalf. He says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith, or uh, maybe better, the partnership of your faith. It is the word koinonia, and often translated fellowship, but really it's this idea of partnership, that uh, we have a common partnership in the gospel and in the faith of Jesus. So I pray that the fellowship, the partnership of your faith, may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come, Paul says, to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints, the hearts of God's people, have been refreshed through you, my brother. So Paul, through these words, lets us know and affirms that Philemon has been a very faithful Christian, He has been a faithful follower of Jesus. He has worked hard in the gospel. He has cared for God's people. His heart is in the right place, even though there's this issue between him and Onesimus. And so Paul can affirm all of that as a way to help set the stage for what he wants to ask Philemon to do on Onesimus' behalf. And thus, Paul can turn his attention now towards really the body of the letter and towards the situation at hand. And so he begins in Philemon 8 with these words. He says, therefore, that is because of your faithfulness, because of the love uh, that you have shown, because of the joy I have because of our partnership in the gospel, therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what's right, Just notice that Paul, because of his authority and because of uh, who he is as an apostle, he says, I could command you to do what's right. 
Yet, for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I'm such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ. Notice what Paul says there in verse 9. I could command you, but for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Um, he is not going to demand. He's not going to command. He's going to ask. He's going to appeal. He's going to try to persuade. On the basis of their partnership in Jesus and their partnership in the gospel, Paul is going to appeal to Philemon to do what is the right thing to do. And Paul even throws in a little bit of persuasive appeal at the end of that when he says, since I'm such a person as Paul, the age, I mean, here I am, an old man and a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Essentially what he's saying is, look, this is what following Jesus and doing the right thing has cost me. It's put me in prison even now in my old age. Philemon, would you consider doing the right thing yourself regardless of what it costs you? And then Paul goes on and begins to state specifically his appeal. So verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for the sake of my child Onesimus, whom I've begotten in my imprisonment. That's where we know that uh, Paul had led Onesimus to faith in Jesus during his imprisonment. So as best as we can tell, Onesimus wasn't a Christian before coming to Paul, meeting Paul in his imprisonment, Paul preaching the gospel to him, Onesimus becomes now a, a Christian, and Paul describes that as uh, me basically giving birth to him as a follower of Jesus. He's now my child, and I, I love him like a father loves his child. And Paul goes on in verse 11 and says, Who was formerly useless to you, but now is both useful to you and to me. And this is a play on Onesimus' name. Onesimus' name means useful. It's a common slave name. It means he's useful. He's useful for good work. He's useful for service. But Paul says, Who was formerly useless to you? Maybe because he was useless as being separated and run away, maybe he, he wasn't doing very good work. He was not a great servant for him, but in some way he was useless to Onesimus. But now he's useful, Paul says, living up to his name, both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, Paul says, which is sending my very heart. Notice the emotional terms, and Paul is modeling for Philemon the way he wants Philemon to feel about Onesimus and the way he wants Philemon to relate to Onesimus. Uh, I'm sending him back to you, which is like sending my very heart. I wish to keep him with me so that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. That is what Paul is saying to Philemon is, I seriously thought about, I would love it uh, if he could have, like stuck around here in my imprisonment and uh, taken care of me, ran errands for me, uh, gotten things done that I needed done, right? He, he could have been my, my servant, and he could have been so on your behalf, and that would have been a good thing, Philemon, but I didn't want to do that without your consent, he says in verse 14. I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. This is why Paul appeals instead of commands. I didn't want to just keep him and then send a letter and say, Oh, Philemon, I'm keeping your servant Onesimus, who's become a Christian because he's very useful to me. And, you know, it's the right thing to do, so just kind of, kind of deal with it, and I hope you bless that situation. Paul was like, No, I want to send him back. And I'm actually like, It would be awesome if you would send him back to me, Philemon, to serve me on 
on your behalf, but I want it to be out of your own heart, out of your own free will. And here's the reason why that's so important for Paul is because Paul knows that forced goodness doesn't form character, but chosen goodness does form character. And Paul is interested in uh, Philemon's character being shaped by the gospel. And so he's asking him to really do this good thing out of his own free will because his character is being shaped by the gospel. Paul goes on in verse 15 and says this. He says, For perhaps he, Onesimus, was for this reason separated from you for a while so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh, meaning in your own household, as your own co-worker, but also in the Lord. And so this gets at the heart of what Paul wants for Philemon and Onesimus. Notice, I want you to welcome him back, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a brother. This is the essence of Paul's appeal to Philemon. He wants Philemon to welcome back a runaway slave as a family member, as a sibling, as a brother. Because for Paul, the gospel doesn't legally necessarily change all the the statuses in the category, certainly not immediately at least, but uh, relationally and treatment-wise, it does change those categories, right? So, for example, in the letter to the Colossians, which, remember, is written to the same church and is being read before this very same church, Paul says in Colossians, he says that uh, there is no longer slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And that is the centerpiece of what Paul is asking now Philemon to live out. Since that's the case, you're not going to relate to Onesimus as a slave person and you his slave owner. You're going to relate to him in the Messiah, in Christ, as a brother. Then in verse 17, Paul gets very explicit about what he wants Philemon to do. He says this, If then... Philemon, you regard me as a partner. That's that same word, koinonia, koinos. If you regard me as a partner in the gospel and a partner in ministry, if we're on the same page and we have the same heart, if you regard me as a partner, and Paul assumes he would, he, if you regard me as a partner, Philemon, and I know you do, accept him, that is Onesimus, accept him as you would me welcome him as you would me. That's the force of that word accept is welcome. And so here comes Onesimus after running away back into Philemon's house and Paul says, welcome him the same way you would welcome me. And in a culture where honor and shame is a big deal and where social status is a big deal like their culture and where Paul had at least spiritual seniority over Philemon, Philemon would welcome Paul with great affection, with great demonstrations of that affection, washing his feet, making sure he had a servant wash his feet, with a hug and an embrace and maybe a kiss on each cheek, right? That's how Philemon would welcome Paul, and Paul is saying to Philemon, do the same thing for Onesimus. 
That, my friends, is incredibly revolutionary and incredibly countercultural. What Paul is asking Philemon to do is goes against everything that uh, Philemon's culture told him he should do. Philemon culturally and legally uh, believed and had been taught and had been told that you needed to treat runaway slaves in a very harsh way so that all your other slaves would know they needed to stand in line. And Paul is saying, no, you're going to welcome him with grace and compassion and brotherly love um, and do so uh, on behalf of me, who you consider a partner in the gospel. This is very risky. This is very countercultural. This is revolutionary. This is the power of the gospel at work in individual relationships. Uh, And that's why... um, the things the New Testament authors say about the relationships between slaves and master are so powerful um, because though they did not issue a blanket call to abolish slavery, they worked to abolish slavery from the inside out by changing the nature of the relationship, by changing the sense of value Uh, for the person. The slave is not just your property, he is your brother, and you're going to treat him with brotherly love as a fellow Christian in Christ. And Paul even goes so far here in verse 18 to say this, and if he has, that is if Onesimus has, wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now here, Paul really embodies the spirit of the gospel deeply and profoundly. Forgiveness always costs. Forgiveness always costs. It, and it cost um, Jesus his life to forgive us of our sins. And Paul's basically doing for Onesimus what Jesus did for him. And so he is saying, if there is any cost involved in welcoming Onesimus back as a brother, if there's any cost that you have to bear on behalf of um, receiving Onesimus, charge that to my account. I will pay for that. And then Paul does say this. He says, I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. That's his, like, he's signing on the dotted line. I will repay it. But, he says, this little persuasive appeal, not to mention to you that you owe to me even to your very self as well. Probably meaning that, um, like, your, your very life in Christ and everything you've received because of Jesus is the result of my own teaching and my own ministry. And so, Bear that in mind, and maybe out of the graciousness of your own heart, you could just let it go. Yes, brother, verse 20, Paul says, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Just like you've refreshed the hearts of the saints, as Paul mentioned at the beginning of the letter, do the same thing for me. And do that for me by welcoming Onesimus back, just like you would me, by forgiving him, and by treating him and responding to him, and now going forward in relationship to him as a brother. And whatever that looks like, you love him like a brother and treat him like a brother. Refresh my heart by doing that. That is Paul's appeal to Philemon. Paul then uh, wraps up the body of the letter by affirming he believes the best about Philemon, and he believes Philemon has a good heart, and he knows Philemon will do the right thing. And so Paul says in verse 21, 
Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know you will do even more than what I ask, what I say. We don't know exactly what Paul had in mind by the more, and maybe it is not just welcome him and treat him like a brother. Maybe it is send him back to Paul to be Paul's servant on Philemon's behalf. Nevertheless, Paul says he has confidence that Philemon will do the right thing, and he'll do even more than just the bare minimum. Paul ends then this section by saying, at the same time, prepare a lodging for me, prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. In other words, I hope that through all your prayers I will be released from prison, and if so, I want to stop by and visit you. And again, there's a little persuasive appeal there. And I want to see how you're treating your slaves. I want to see how the relationship between you and Onesimus is going. I want to catch up with you and, and see how you're doing and see how you took this letter to heart. And so prepare a lodging. Get a guest room ready because I'm hoping fairly soon that I'll be given to you. I'll be released from prison and able to come and visit you. And that ends their, the body of the letter. And so Paul has made his appeal and now he signs off the letter with just customary greetings. And so verses 23 through 25 says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Epaphras is the fellow who started the, let, the church in Colossae. And apparently he's with Paul at this point in time. So my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. And they're with Paul in his imprisonment. And they're helping Paul do various things. And we see their names mentioned at the end of Colossians as well. And then the final line of the letter is, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. And an interesting little important detail in that last little line is that the your in that line is actually plural in Greek. So the grace of the Lord Jesus be with the spirit of you all is the idea, meaning the whole church. Because Paul intends this letter to be read before the whole church. Um, and he wants the whole church to wrestle with the implications of what he's asking Philemon to do. He wants the other wealthy landowners to hear this so they they understand where it came from and why Philemon's about ready to do what Paul's asking him to do and ha how they should act as well. So this is for you all, not just for Philemon, but for you all. And that's the reason really it's in our Bible. This is a very personal letter about a specific issue, but Paul intended it to be for the whole church, and hence it has a message for even the church today. So, just some reflections by way of implication and some theology for application as we wrap up our study of the letter to Philemon. The heart of this letter is about the power of the gospel to bring reconciliation. And reconciliation is a nice idea until you have to do it. And for Philemon, it's going to be hard. And for Onesimus, it's going to be risky. And there, it's going to be messy and not always clear. And they're going to have to navigate the waters as they move forward. And as Onesimus still acts as Philemon's slave, and yet now being treated as a brother, how is that going to play out? And frankly, I think that's part of the reason why there's so many instructions directed at slaves in the letter to Colossians, which is, again, addressed to this whole church, because the slaves need to know that being treated like a brother doesn't mean you just sit around and you don't do any work. It actually means that you also treat your slave owner as a brother, and you work hard for him because you want the best thing for him, and you do it out of a good heart. And Paul explains all that in, in Colossians. And so reconciliation is a nice idea, but it's hard in practice. And this letter calls us to say the gospel demands we figure out how to do relationships differently. When relationships are fractured, we work hard to repair them on behalf of Jesus. Um, 
in in Christ, those relationships are going to, to look different than society. And so class and status and wealth and power is not going to be used the same way in in the church, in God's new family, as it is outside of God's new family. And we're going to have to figure a new way forward. And so how are we going to do that? And so that's really at the heart of this letter. And as you think through how to apply this letter, you need to think about the relationships in your life. You need to think about the relationships with extended family, the relationships with people in the church, the relationships with Maybe even uh, fellow believers who have been co-workers and those relationships have been strained. And what would it look like for you to, to the best of your ability, treat them like a brother, treat them like a sister? And how do we live out this, this relationship as God's new family in Christ? That's what the gospel calls us to. Another really important implication for the letter to Philemon is this, that Philemon has power and authority over Onesimus, and Paul is asking him to use that power and authority not to get his own way, not to defend his own honor, but to use that power and authority for the sake of Onesimus's good, and ultimately for the sake of his own other slave's good. And so uh, the implication that I see here is for our use of power and authority, that um, In God's new humanity, power and authority is always power and authority to serve, power and authority to benefit others, power and authority to raise other people up, not to raise ourselves up and put other people down. And so as you reflect on the letter to Philemon, think through the places where you have power and authority and influence, and how are you using that for the sake of others not to serve yourself? How are you using that in such a way to benefit others and for their well-being and being considerate of their needs, not just the considerate of your needs? And so power and authority is transformed by the message of Philemon. To wrap up, we don't know how the story of Philemon and Onesimus ends. We don't know what the uh, relationship and how they all responded to this letter. So we're left to guess and we're left to assume and we're left to wait and see. And maybe eventually, uh, someday, Lord willing, in the new earth, when we're all together, we'll get to have a conversation with Philemon and maybe get to have a conversation with Onesimus. And we'll hear a story of the gospel being lived out in a very specific relationship. Um, And it can encourage us then, as it can challenge us now, that even though we don't know how Philemon and Onesimus resolve that relationship, we ourselves can take a look into the mirror of God's word and say, I'm going to work hard to embody the very kind of spirit that Paul has appealed to Philemon to have. I'm going to try to have that myself in my own relationships, in my own household, in my own business, wherever I live. I'm going to try to embody the message of the gospel, just like Paul appealed to Philemon to do.